Okay. Uh, I think that uh, um, Lisa and Anita are twins separated at birth. They are just like two peas in a pod. So, uh, and Pastor John, we love you so much. And uh, you, you mentioned that I was here or traveled with Brother Hagen. One of the places I traveled with Brother Hagen was right here. Uh, and, and Pastor John and I, we always talk about Sam, you know, when we're, because how many, how many of you are here when Pastor Sam was here? And you know what a character he was, right? I mean, you talk about one of a kind. And uh, I mean, he, how many of you know he could give people the what for, you know? But um, one of the trips I made with Brother Hagen, it would have been about 1991, was right here. And I, I will tell you, Pastor John, later, but I'm not going to tell them. Uh, Brother Hagen embarrassed Sam in a, in a hilarious way. And can you imagine anybody embarrassing Pastor Sam? The, the, the stuff Pastor Sam could give out, but Brother Hagen got him, and you saw, and, and Brother Hagen just had, he laughed, he thought that was so funny. It was really in good nature. I mean, he, he honored Pastor Sam, he loved Pastor Sam, but boy, did he get him at that particular moment. It's, I can't repeat it here. Okay, so um, anyway, do you remember that? You remember that, yeah. Um, but uh, it is such a joy for Lisa and I to be here. We've been here, you know, many times over the years, and it's just always an absolutely delightful place to come. And one of the things I want to uh, thank you for is that th- because you give uh, faithfully and generously to your local church, because you give faithfully to FCC, uh, you guys are able, I heard you about, you're helping that ministry in Louisiana, and, and you've helped us in our work every year for I don't know how long. I mean, as lo- we've been traveling now for 19 years, and as long as I remember, you guys have been helping us. So we want to say thank you. And I want to show you a couple pictures, uh, one in particular just to show you where you've helped us to be. Uh, over the years. These are the countries that I've been able to minister to in person. And we now have to clarify that because we've ministered in, a, uh, in many other nations the last two years uh, by Zoom, you know, internet type meetings. But these are the places you've helped us to go in person and minister. And you've had a part of every single one of these trips. You've helped, you know, you've enabled us, your giving and your generosity has enabled us to do that. And so we want to say thank you. We do want to let you know about the books. Uh, Pastor John mentioned the books. If we could go to the next slide. Uh, These are the books. The center stack are the books in English. And we have all of those here today. But what really excites us are the stacks on the left and the right. Uh, those are the books in other translations and other languages. And uh, you can see the different Chinese, Arabic, Indonesian, Russian, Greek, so on and so forth. And um, I just got word, I didn't even tell Lisa this, she always learns about things from the pulpit. Uh, in Search of Timothy is 60% done in Hindi. I just found out from Kevin Castro the other day. So we've got to add a, a, some Indian, and they're also working on that in Nepal, ne- ne- the Nepali language. So anyway, that's, you've, you help us with a lot of that as well. Uh, the next slide, uh, these are the books in English. Uh, these are the ones that we've had probably on previous trips here. We've had most all of these books uh, for several years. And uh, the next slide is going to show you, these are the books that came out last year 
uh, during the coronavirus shutdown. You say, well, why are there more? You know, there's a lot more just from one year. It's because we weren't traveling as much last year, and I had a lot more time to write. And, uh, and plus, my yard looked really good last year. Um, we went from traveling, we were overseas 93 days in 2019, 237 days total on the road. Last year, we kind of got the brakes put on, like anybody here get the brakes put on last year? We only traveled 109 days last year. But I was able to write a lot more. And so these books are, are pretty new, very new, probably have never been here before. So uh, we just encourage you, if those will help you and benefit you in some way, we invite you to partake of them. Uh, I want to share with you a message that I have never shared before. And uh, as a matter of fact, I wrote most of it last night. I, I'd been accumulating some materials and kind of uh, situated it for this morning. So this is the maiden voyage of this uh, message, and I hope it, it goes over well. But it kind of is rooted in uh, it, what is my personal background, my personal experience, which may be similar to yours. I was raised in a, in a traditional, formal type of church, uh, you know, kind of a, a mainline denominational type of church. And I don't mean any negativity or criticism whatsoever. I'm thankful for all the things I learned. I, I learned about uh, the Ten Commandments. How many of you think the Ten Commandments are pretty awesome? How many of you hope your neighbor believes in the Ten Commandments? You know, I mean, those help a society. If people understand, you know, hey, let's not kill each other. Let's not steal from each other. You know, let's not lie to each other and cheat each other. You know, just, you know, the Ten Commandments form a, a basis for a pretty civil society. And I'm glad I learned about the Ten Commandments. I'm, I'm glad I learned the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, aren't you? Uh, that it's good to be a peacemaker. It's good to forgive. It's good to show mercy and kindness and things of that nature. Uh, I'm thankful I learned uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm thankful I learned the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed and so many good things, positive things that I learned in my church upbringing. But one of the things as I look back and you know, I had other spiritual experiences throughout my journey, but I realized that my first several years uh, in church growing up, I, I primarily felt like a spectator. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience of just feeling like you were, you were there, you know, and we always had things on our, we, we got a sheet of paper every time that we came into church, a uh, order of service and and it had certain things that, you know, responsive readings and, and then things that we were supposed to say and we would read off the, the, uh, the, the uh, order of service. And, uh, and so I guess, I guess in a way we were participating, but I, I always felt like it was kind of, I was more of an outside spectator than an actual participant. And um, had experiences at the age of 14, at the age of 18, where I encountered Jesus in more of a, a personal, meaningful way. At the age of 18, I was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to understand the reality of what it means that God wants to have a really meaningful personal relationship with us. You know, the Bible says that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
So I'm thankful for everything I got, you know, as a young person in terms of information. Uh, information is good. That information had moral ramifications, ethical ramifications. I'm thankful for all that. Uh, but it wasn't until I was a little bit later that I began to encounter more personal, deeply meaningful, uh, supernatural uh, encountering the presence and the person of God in my personal life. And, um, and it kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, if, you, if you've studied the Old Testament much, you know that there was a special class of people in the Old Testament. I want you to stop and think about this. We're thinking about, you know, the Jewish people and how God led them. You know, Moses brought them out of Egypt and then they established a special class of people because the, the regular common folk couldn't really go into the presence of God for themselves, right? They had to have somebody else to go into the presence of God for them. There was a special class. And if you weren't part of that special class, then you were kind of, in a sense, you know, you were part of the, the commonwealth of Israel, but, but you could not go directly into the presence of God yourself. You had to have somebody else go into the presence of God for you. And they would take an offering. Uh, you know, in some cases it, it involved blood, in some cases it involved grain and different, you know, they had all these different offerings. And you couldn't offer that yourself because you were, you were more of a spectator. I guess you participated, but you participated indirectly through someone else, right? Who is the person that uh, took your offering into the presence of God? What was that person called? That was a, a priest, and so th there was a special class, a special classification of, of part of the, the, the commonwealth of Israel who was called a priest, and they got to be, they were the insiders. You were kind of the outsider if you were not part of that priestly class. And you know what's happened is that in some versions of Christianity, in some expressions of Christianity, there is still a mentality that somebody else has to be a holy person on your behalf and that you yourself are not qualified to approach God directly or represent God directly. You have to do your Christianity somewhat vicariously through someone else. But I want to introduce you to a thought. This is, we can go to our first scripture on the screen. This is something that the Apostle Peter told believers in mass. He, he wasn't talking to some special class of Christian. The very fact that you are a Christian means that you're a special class. You're a unique. How many of you know that you're a new creature in Christ? I, I know your Pastor John is an outstanding Bible teacher, and, and without even asking him, I know that he has taught you over the years who you are in Christ, that you're a new creature in Christ, 
that you are a child of God, that you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that you are accepted in the beloved. And, And I know without even asking that your pastor has taught you who you are in Christ. Well, there's dozens and dozens of biblical descriptions about that, and here is one of them. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, and then verse 9, he says, you also, and he's talking to all Christians, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. You as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Now, I I know that many people today don't build their homes out of stones, but have you all seen at least some home uh, that is made out of stones? What what is it? the, The unique thing about a house made out of stones is the stones are not loose, right? If the stones are loose and disjointed, in a house, you have a what? You have a problem. In order for stones to be a house, they have to be what? They have to be joined together in some way, shape, or form. There's some type of mortar or cement, and I don't know all the building materials, but there's some type of, of, of material that holds the stones together. So before you start thinking, I'm a living stone, yes, you are. That speaks of your individual relationship with God. But a living stone by itself doesn't do anything toward the house unless it is connected to other stones. So you are living stones Every stone is an individual. You have an individual relationship with God, but you are being built into a spiritual house, which means that somehow, some way, we have to be connected together. All right? So Peter says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. What's that next word? Or phrase, a spiritual priesthood. Do you know what I'm looking? I'm looking today at a spiritual priesthood. Now, I'm not, I don't mean this to be negative or derogatory toward anybody who uses different terms than we use or different things, but, but when I read the Bible, you are a spiritual priesthood. He goes on to say, uh, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a what? A royal priesthood. You're not just a holy priesthood, but you are a royal priesthood. Has anybody ever told you that's who you are? See, you may have thought a priest was somebody different than you. Somebody who had other qualifications and that you are unqualified and that you don't don't, uh, fit into this category. But the Bible says 
of New Testament believers, of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that you are a holy priesthood and that you are a royal priesthood. What does it say? A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Turn to your neighbor and say, I did not know I was that awesome. How many of you feel a little more special now? I mean, just, you know, the the devil, you know, and, and all of that we have, we don't have because we're hot stuff, right? We have all of that because of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did for us. In our own natural self, we were lost, we were separated from God, we were under the penalty of sin. But Jesus came and he didn't just forgive us so we could crawl into heaven, you know. uh, he, He saved us to make us all of this, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, uh, God's own special people that we might proclaim his praises. And, and it's just wonderful. If you, if you want another confirmation of this, I, I don't have this for the screen, but Revelation chapter, verse, uh, chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, John says that we have, not only has Jesus Christ loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, but he says that he has made us kings and priests unto God. Stop and think about that. We, you are not mere mortals. I mean, we're fully human you know, this outward man will perish, etc. But, but if, if this outward tent dissolves, we have a house not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. You're somebody special. God's made you a holy priesthood, a, a, a royal priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God. I want to give you a definition and we have this on the screen. What do we mean by the priesthood of the believer? And here's a definition. When we say the priesthood of the believer, what we are saying is that every child of God has the privilege of direct access to God through Jesus Christ and the responsibility of representing God on behalf and ministering to others on his behalf. Now, when some people find out, when they begin to discover this spiritual truth that I am a priest, I just thought I was a, just a normal believer. Normal believers are priests in the biblical definitions. Some people say, well, if I have direct access to God, then do I really need to go to church? Two separate issues. We have direct access to God because we are a royal priesthood. 
but we need to come to church because you can't be built into a spiritual house if you're alienated from all the other stones. We all have direct access to God. Wouldn't it be something? Now, now please don't misunderstand me. We need one another. We need pastors. The Bible says that Jesus, when he ascended, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to build up the body of Christ. It's not that we don't need pastors and teachers. It's just that we need to understand the privileges that we have as believers and the responsibilities that those have who are in a five-fold ministry office. One of the things, see, if you were to come up to me and say, Brother Cook, I just need you to pray for me because I know God will never hear my prayers, but he'll hear your prayers. What, what, what would I do with that? Am I supposed to say, you're right? God would never hear your prayers, but he would hear mine. See, that's putting me in a different class. Now, I'm a teacher in the body of Christ. God's given me a call and, and equipped me, anointed me to teach people. Uh, but when I teach people, it's not to draw people to myself. It's to draw people to him. So if somebody comes to me and says, oh, Brother Cook, uh, you know, God wouldn't hear my prayer, but he'll hear yours. My job is not to say, okay, well, I'll pray because now I might pray for people. We should, how many of you know we should all pray for one another? But my, my main job is going to say, brother, sister, God will hear your prayers. I'll be glad to add my faith to yours. I'll be glad to pray with you. Jesus talked about the prayer of agreement. But my, my number one job as a, as a teacher is to teach them who they are in Christ. And that through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says we have access by one spirit unto him. The Bible says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. So I'm going to use my tool, my skill of teaching to teach them that they can pray. To, the Bible says there is one God and how many mediators? There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So if I think somebody is looking at me as their mediator, I have a job as a fellow believer and as a teacher to let them know, no, I am not your mediator. You don't come to God through me. That's not my job. Uh, there is one God. There is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And I'm going to use my teaching gift to teach them how to become more dependent on him. I'm going to teach them how they can exercise their own priesthood. I don't know, Pastor John, if I should share this or not, because I, I don't want people to think I'm sacrilegious or anything, but one time, how many of you know sometimes to make a point, you just have to shock somebody? I was sitting in my office there at Ramah, and 
somebody came into my office and said, Brother Cook, I just know God does not hear me when I pray. And I said, why would you say that? I just know, I just can feel it. God does not hear me when I pray. And I said, are you sure? I know it. God does not hear me when I pray. I said, well, would you do something if I asked you to do it? And they said, yeah. I said, just, just cuss. I said, just blurt out every cuss word you can possibly think of. And the person looked at me and said, I'm not going to do that. And I said, why not? Well, God would hear me. Now, I did not want them to cuss, all right? But I did that for shock value. I knew they wouldn't cuss. I did that for shock value because, and so I immediately said, so what you're saying is you have faith that God would hear you if you cuss, but you don't have faith that God would hear you when you pray. And boy, it, it shocked them and they realized they had more faith in their sin than they did in the blood of Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't hear us because of how perfect we've been or how flawless we've been. How many of you know if God related to us based on our perfection, do you know how much trouble we would all be in? God doesn't deal with us according to how good we've been or how bad we've been. God deals with us according to His mercy. God deals with us according to the blood of Jesus Christ. So I know, and you can know, that God hears us when we pray because we're coming to Him through His Son, Jesus. And Jesus is the mediator. We exercise our priesthood, our priesthood, through the great high priest, Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? So what is our definition of the priesthood of the believer? Every child of God has the privilege of direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And the responsibility... Now see, this second part is what people don't think about. How many of you know we all want the privilege of access? But when you go into the presence of God in a sense, you're also going to come out of the presence of God and live your normal life, you know. Jesus had wonderful times, and, and in one sense, yes, in one sense, we can walk in the presence of God 24 hours a day, but how many of you know there are times where you're more focused on being in the presence of God, and there are other times where you're actually having to do other parts of life? Now, Brother Lawrence, who wrote Practicing the Presence of God, you know, he made the great point that when you're in the kitchen doing the dishes, you can still be enjoying the presence of God. I affirm that. But I also understand there are times of, for example, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay? He's glorified. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. And Peter, James, and John are watching. And Jesus is spiritually radioactive. He's glowing with the presence of God. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. And then all of a sudden, that experience kind of diminishes. And Jesus is back to kind of normal 
and, and, he, and they go, what do they do? They go down the mountain and they find a, a problem. There's a man who's saying, Jesus, my son is vexed with the demon and we tried to get your disciples to cast it out and they couldn't do it. And what does Jesus do? He ministers deliverance. He sets that young boy free from that tormenting condition. So when we look at priesthood, what we're saying is priesthood gives us access into the presence of God, but then as we come out of those various experiences in life where we may partake of Him in particularly strong ways, then what is the second part of priesthood? We have the responsibility then of representing God and ministering to others on His behalf. So your priesthood is not just for your benefit alone. You are a priest. Yes, you absolutely benefit from your priesthood. But it also carries with it responsibilities. Let's look at another verse here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, now He uses us. He uses us. How many of you want God to use you? We don't just want to partake of God's benefit. You know, we should have that prayer. God, use me. Freely I have received. Freely give. Christians should and usually are the most generous people on earth. They, we have received from God, and, and God, I don't want to be stingy with this blessing. Uh, if you've given me joy, then I want to help bring joy into other people's lives. You've blessed me with peace. Lord, I want to help other people have peace. Paul says he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. Do you see two different things there? He uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Have you ever been around somebody that put too much perfume on? I don't use a lot of cologne. I just am not a cologne guy. I, I use, what's that, Gillette stuff and you know, slap it on. It's just an aftershave type thing. But I have a bottle of cologne and every once in a while, I don't know, just, you know, I, I spray some of that on. And what, Lisa, what do you tell me sometimes? Oh, you put that on a little strong, you know. And uh, so, sometimes, you know, we, we get something. Hey, let me say it this way. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a smoke-filled room for a while? Been in a smoke-filled room and you go out and what happens? That smoke just permeates everything and you go you get around somebody else and they're thinking man you know how many packs did you just smoke to come but but see perfume smoke incense from the see this is really this is really priestly language that Paul is using here because when the priests of the old testament that there, there would, they would minister in the outer court, that the animal sacrifices and so on, 
which speak of forgiveness and redemption. But then they would go to this laver. And in this laver, they would wash themselves because they had to be clean in order to go into the presence of God. And they went into the holy place and they're not offering up you know, animal sacrifices there. You know what they're doing? They're go- one of the places they go is what's called the altar of incense. And they're, uh, they're, they're, they're putting incense on this fire and these, these uh, uh, vapors of the incense are going up. But you know what? The priest who is standing there is getting saturated, his clothing, his hair, everything about him is, is permeated with this beautiful, fragrant incense. What do you think the incense represented? It represented prayer and praise and worship. And it would go up over the veil into the very holy of holies. And, and, but when the priest came out of the holy place... Anybody that got near the priest, oh man, he smells good. See, we should carry, notice what Paul said, this is priestly language. He uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. That is so beautiful. Let me give you a few statements that people have made about the priesthood of the believer. How many of you are excited about being a priest? How many of you are glad you have direct access to God through, through Jesus Christ? Don't try going to God based, now God, I don't need Jesus today. I'm just going to talk to you, me to you. No, don't do that. You need to access God through Jesus. It's His sacrifice that makes you acceptable. How many of you are excited not just to have direct access when you go to God, but you're, you're thankful to have a responsibility then when you come out from the presence of God, as it were, to, to be permeated with the fragrance of His presence? Let me show you a couple of quotes here. Martin Luther said this. He said, Indeed, all Christians are priests, and all priests are Christians. John Calvin said, in him, we are all priests to offer praises and thanksgiving. In short, to offer ourselves and ours to God. See, God doesn't just want you to give him a song. God doesn't just want you to give him words. God doesn't just want you to give your money in an offering. God wants you to give who you are and all you have. Once you've given God all that you are and all that you have, everything else is easy after that. Some people think, well, give 10%. No, give 100% to God, but realize He lets you keep a pretty good portion of that for yourself. We give ourselves unto God. Here's a great statement. Um, let's read this. Because I want to I take this into some practical reality. How many of you know we live in a rough world? How many of you know we live in a crazy world that seems to be getting crazier all the time? Uh, as You know, I, I love to study history and um, especially Roman history, the church in the first few centuries, you know, was 
under the Roman Empire. That's why in all the Easter plays and Christmas plays, you know, the, well, at Christmas, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Well, that's the Roman Empire. And Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. And when Jesus, you know, that's why you see the soldiers around the cross. That's why you see Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor who's, you know, involved in some of that decision-making. Israel and, and Jesus himself was raised when their country was totally under the dominion of another country. Pastor John and Anita were so kind to take us yesterday to Boston, and we saw several of the places where, you know, planning was done and and people were figuring out how can we get out from under England's control. Well, there were a lot of Israelites back in the time of Jesus that were trying to think, how do we get out from under the, the thumb of the Roman Empire? As a matter of fact, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the last question, I think, that the disciples said was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, when are you going to kick these lousy Romans out of here? And we're going to get to govern our own country and not be governed by an outside, you know, oppressive force. So, in the first few centuries, this is from a great church historian, Uh, During the persecution under Gallus, he was one of the Roman emperors, in 252, when the pestilence raged in Carthage. How many of you know that this plague we call coronavirus is one of hundreds of plagues that have affected humanity? You know, this, it may be new to us, Uh, because of where we live and that type of thing. But back in ancient days, these plagues would many times come every few years. And and, uh, not to be dismissive in any way, we've all known people who've died of coronavirus, and I don't minimize that in any way, shape, or form. But relatively speaking, comparatively speaking, in many of these plagues that would happen in the ancient world, they would, they would have 30% of the population die. Much worse than, you know, what we're seeing today. And again, I'm not minimizing anything about today. I'm just saying, but when in, in the, the pestilence was raging in Carthage, and the heathens threw out their dead and sick upon the streets and ran away from them for fear of the contagion, and they cursed the Christians... They cursed the Christians as the supposed authors of the plague. Now, let's stop right there. Why did they curse the Christians? Well, they were, of course, a very superstitious people. They worshipped a pantheon of gods. And, you know, you probably studied a little bit of Greek mythology and Roman mythology. They had this whole... League of deities and Mars, the god of war, and Jupiter and Athena, and and um, you know just just an unlimited number of gods. And any time in the ancient world, I'm talking back to the first few centuries. Any time in the ancient world that there was an earthquake, a plague, 
famine, a flood, any natural disaster was because why? Because the gods were angry. And why were the gods angry? Because they weren't being worshipped enough. And who was not worshipping the Greek and the Roman gods? The Christians. They refused to worship anybody but the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And because the Christians were known for not worshipping these other multitude of gods... That's why the gods were angry. That's why plagues came. That's why famines came. uh, uh, Floods came. Every natural disaster. So they cursed the Christians. Do you know there are people that kind of curse Christians today? Because we don't go along with certain things. But what, what did the church do? And I say this, this is historically factual, but I think we have to learn from history, don't you? When, when they were cursing the Christians as the supposed authors of the plague, Cyprian, Cyprian was the pastor in Carthage, northern Africa, but it was part of the Roman Empire. Cyprian assembled his congregation and exhorted them to what? to love their enemies. Now, I know we're living in a day of intense ideological conflict. Ideas and philosophical agendas and political agendas and all that. But you know what the first thing Cyprian did when he got his church together? He said, we're going to love everybody. How many of you think that's still good counsel? We're going to love, we may not agree with everybody, but we are going to love everybody, even our enemies. Whereupon, look at this, whereupon these these four words all went to work. All went to work. Christians got busy. And and I believe if, if we're going to see happen in our nation and in our world today, How many of you know Jesus said that we were to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm not here to get, I'm not even an eschatological smart guy. But I'm just saying, a lot of what's happening in the world today is not God's will. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And all oppression... The Bible says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And you and I as Christians, what are we called to be? We're called to be light. We're called to be salt. We we aren't necessarily going to win every argument. How many of you know people already have their minds made up? We may not win certain arguments, but and I'm not sure the Bible always calls us to win arguments, but the Bible says we are to win hearts. We are to win lives. We are to win souls. This is so powerful. They all went to work. What, Pastor John, what would the church look like? Not, not just FCC, but all the churches of New England. If every believer understood, I'm a priest... 
and I have access into the presence of God, and there I find fullness of joy. There I find peace. I get refueled. I get my soul renewed. I get my mind renewed. My, I get restored, refreshed. What if we all exercised our priesthood and then as we go about our daily lives, our week-to-week, day-to-day lives, if every believer then went to work? What a difference we could make in this world. And how did they do it? I love this. The rich with their money. The poor with their hands. Isn't that a pretty good formula? Man, if God's blessed you with material stuff, man, put it to work in the kingdom of God. I I love seeing, I don't know much, you told me a little bit about, I love seeing all these pallets of things out there to help help people with. Uh, Man, the church uh, was designed to be, look at what happened. They all went to work with the the, the rich with their money, the poor with their hands, and they rested not... Look at this, till the dead were buried, the sick cared for, and the city saved from desolation. They brought hope because they got involved in their community. They got involved. They were priests who went into the presence of God. And, and were full of the love of God. When they came out of the presence of God, they they were like priests who, who had been on this incense and they carried the aroma of Christ. They carried the aroma of life in the midst of death. And you know what they did? They, they were engaged in acts of mercy and acts of compassion. The Christians who were blamed for the plague were literally the ones that would go in and say, we're going we're to treat people with dignity. See, families, if somebody died, they would throw their body out in the street and, and wouldn't want anything to do with it. Just the Christians would say, we're going to give this person dignity. Here's a person that's sick. We're going to pray. We're going to give compassion. I think, I, think, I think the church in Carthage actually had bottles of that hand sanitizer. No, they didn't really. I, just, I made that up. Okay, that's not true. You knew that. They rested not till the dead were buried, the sick cared for, and the city saved from desolation. Real quick, we're going to wrap up here. Quick quote from Vance Havner, wonderful Baptist preacher. He said, Every Christian is a priest, not offering a sacrifice for sins. How many of you know we don't do that part? There's some parts of Jesus' priesthood that we just receive that he did that by faith. But every Christian, he said, is a priest, not offering a sacrifice for sins, since that has been done once and for all, but offering his person, praise, and possessions. We're priests. We're, we're not just ordinary mortals. We're, pre, we're a royal priesthood. We're a holy priesthood. One final quote, and we'll close with this, from Charles Spurgeon, I believe. He said, we need to have a church in which all the members do something. Everybody does something. We all represent Jesus in some way. 
We all give. We all serve. We all love. We all uh, are a light. We're all salt. We need to have a church in which all the members do something, in which they do all they can, in which they are always doing all they can, for this is what our Lord deserves to have from a living, loving people bought with his precious blood. If he has saved me, I will serve him forever and ever. And whatever lies in my power to do for his glory, that shall be my delight to do and to do it at once. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the privilege of of being born again. We're so thankful that Jesus, he died for our sins. He shed his blood, not just so that we could be forgiven and, and accepted and go to heaven when we die, but so that we could live a meaningful life here and now, that we could exercise that royal priesthood to which we have been called. Father, help us to know the, and to appreciate and to exercise the full access into your presence, that, that we're always invited to come boldly before the presence of God. But Father, also help us to know our responsibility as we function in this world. Lord, we're not beggars. We're not abandoned, just waiting for Jesus to come back so we can escape and get out of here. But Jesus, we're priests. We carry an aroma. We carry a fragrance. We have a perfume that just smells like heaven. Spiritually speaking, Lord, we are an aroma of life. And we pray that we'll be that effectively for you. And that, Lord, we can just be like that church in Carthage in, in the second century that they were told, love your enemies. And then every single one of them went to work. Lord, may we be people of action. Thank you, Father. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, let me just ask this. You know, there may be people here today that, you know, I, there is a time in my life where I've